Well, not long after we got married, someone who had come to stay with us uh, bought Caroline and I a, a present. It was a DVD of a marriage course aimed at improving married life. A few weeks after they'd left, we dutifully put on the DVD, sort of settled down to watch it. And the program started with this wonderful picture uh, of a bride and a groom with flowers. And that was the sort of opening screen of, of the course. But then the screen started to go darker and grey clouds start to appear above the couple. The drawing starts to rip and fade and the flowers begin to wither. And then stark letters appear on the screen that say, what did you expect? Well, it looked like the beginning of a horror film, uh, not uh, a marriage guidance DVD. Uh, I've checked online since and they've changed the graphics now. But actually, the course was quite good, but it, it sort of threw cold water over the whole feel of the course. But you get that opening every time as it sort of faded away into darkness. But it's a good question, isn't it? What did you expect? What did you expect from the Christian life, for example? How was it explained to you when you became a Christian? Did you expect it to be all sunshine and rainbows? Did you think that it was going to be easy? Did you think that it was going to be victory after victory, sort of pressing on as you, you go on? Well, in the second half of Mark's gospel, Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to follow him, what being a disciple of Jesus will look like. And Jesus has got some really mixed up ideas that the disciples uh, have got that he's got to correct as he goes through. Jesus needs to reorientate them to stop thinking the thoughts of men, as Jesus put it in chapter 7, and to start considering the things of God. Jesus needs to teach them what it will be like to follow him in the light that he's going to die. He's soon going to die on the cross. What does it mean to follow a crucified Messiah? And that's something that we need to know too, isn't it? We need to know what to expect on our journey of discipleship. We need to know what it looks like to follow Jesus. What does it mean for us in the time after Jesus' death and before his return to follow him? Well, let's hear it from Jesus himself. Firstly, what Jesus expects, the cross. Let me just read to you again verses 32 to 34. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. The disciples here begin their journey to Jerusalem for the Passover. This will be the last journey Jesus will make in his earthly ministry. There's a real mixture of emotions here among the disciples. They're amazed at what's going on, as are the crowds. They've seen Jesus do incredible things, but they're also afraid. What awaits them in Jerusalem? They must know of the plots that have been made against Jesus' life. And yet they also believe that he is the Messiah. Perhaps they're expecting Jesus to bring some great victory when they arrive in Jerusalem. They're amazed and afraid. And in the midst of that, Jesus here gives the third and final direct foretelling of his imminent death. 
There'll be more to say in other ways as we go through the gospel. But here we have the most in-depth prophecy of his death on the cross in Mark's gospel. He tells the disciples details that he hasn't told them before. That his death will be in Jerusalem. That it will be handed over. Not simply be killed, but mocked and spat on and flogged. In other words, he tells them this will be a humiliating death. There'll be a sort of double handing over, which he's not told them. So first to the Jewish leaders, who in turn will hand them over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And it will be the Gentiles who ultimately will kill him. Those things they haven't been told before. He's he's letting them know even more what's going to happen. And all of this is astonishingly accurate. Quite apart from the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus' death, Thing, uh, actually, his own prophecies are fulfilled by his death. Things over which he has little or no control. He can't decide whether he's flogged or spat on or who's handing him over to who. But the Gospels make clear that Jesus knew exactly what would happen to him. And yet here he is, we're told, on the way to Jerusalem, knowing what would come. And his message throughout the section throughout this section of Mark's gospel has been this, the cross. That's his focus, the cross. This is where it's all going. This is what Jesus wants to talk to his disciples about. The resurrection is there too, yes, but the focus throughout Mark is the cross. In fact, it's really the main subject of Jesus' teaching. Even the kingdom theme finds its fulfillment at the cross, where Jesus is dressed as a king, mocked as a king, and proclaimed by a plaque above his head to be the king of the Jews. And Jesus here teaches about it openly and plainly. And yet there are still those who insist, don't they, that Jesus was a great teacher, yet actually they want nothing to do with the main subject, the cross. Those bits, well, they're added in, they say. Yet think of what we've seen in Mark amidst his other teaching. Jesus is the bridegroom who will be taken away. Jesus is the one who has promised to bind the strong man, the devil, and beat him. Jesus is the one following in the footsteps of John the Baptist, who was arrested and killed by the authorities. Jesus is the one who has told them to take up their cross and follow him. Later on in Mark, Jesus will be the son of the vineyard owner, who is killed by the tenants. He'll be the one anointed for his death, according to him, by the woman with perfume. He will institute the Lord's Supper, which speaks directly of his broken body and his shed blood, and he'll teach them to keep it. He'll be the one whose prayers teach of his forthcoming death as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Throughout the gospel, the cross is woven into the fabric of the teaching. How can we admire his teaching... And ignore the cross. Those are not some later additions by the disciples to make Jesus look like he knew that it would happen. The cross is built into the fabric of the gospel. This is Jesus' focus throughout. This is what Jesus wants to teach them. Jesus wants to talk about the cross and the path of suffering. What do the disciples want to talk about? Well, our second point... Um, Our second point uh, is, what did the the disciples expect? Glory, verses 35 to 40. Let me read that uh, to you again. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? 
And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The disciples don't want to talk about the cross and suffering. They want to talk about glory. They want to know who's got the best seats in heaven. Can we have them? Perhaps it's uh, not even heaven they're thinking about, but Jerusalem. They might be thinking of Jesus as an earthly king with earthly glory. They might be thinking this is like Julius Caesar going into Rome. Who's going to be a right-hand general when we get there? They're after the glory. They don't want to think about the way of the cross that Jesus has been teaching them, but think this is what he said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But the disciples here, it seems like they want the glory without the cross. They want the happy ending without the difficult path to get there. Jesus is clear throughout the Gospels that the path of discipleship is a path of servanthood and suffering. They're following a suffering Messiah. There is glory to come, but it lies at the end after they've carried their cross in this life. Jesus tries to reorientate their thinking by asking them that question in verse 38. um, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The cup there refers to the agonies of the cross as Jesus took God's wrath. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He's talking about his suffering on the cross. The baptism, too, looks forward to his suffering. Baptism is a picture of death as you're surrounded by the water going under. Apparently, the words more often used to describe people being drowned or overwhelmed by the waters. But James and John don't seem to pick this up. Some have wondered whether they think the cup is linked with them being at the table. Uh, that they're talking about at the banquet, you know, oh, can you have my cup? Some think that the baptism they're thinking of is when Jesus uh, was baptized and heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit came on him. Can, Can you do that? Oh, yeah, sure, we want part of that. Whatever it is that they're thinking, though, they've not understood the uniqueness of what Jesus is going through. He's about to lay down his life on the cross to pay for the sins of his people to take the place of sinners like them. But as if to show it's not always Peter who directly puts his foot in his mouth, James and John declare confidently that they can do what Jesus does. Yes, we can share your cup and your baptism. Here, not so far from the cross, they still haven't understood a thing. You will share my cup and my baptism, says Jesus, but not in the way that you think. I will suffer for my people in a way that you cannot, to pay for their sin. You too will suffer for my people as you take this message out. I will deny myself and take up my cross, and you also will deny yourselves and take up your cross. 
but it's not about places on my left and right. That's not mine to grant. Interestingly, the only place that language of left and right uh, is picked up later on in Mark's Gospel is Mark 15, when Jesus talks about the, uh, what's happening on the cross. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. There are the people on the right and his left as he comes into his glory. A reminder that the kingdom is not quite what they are thinking. Jesus' path to glory is as the suffering servant on the cross. But Jesus isn't finished there. He has more to say. So we see in our last point what we are to expect, the way of the cross. Let me read to you verses 41 to 45. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The other ten disciples, they're indignant. They're thinking, why didn't we ask that question? Uh, before they did, we could have got the best seats in heaven. They too have got their thinking of greatness wrong. So Jesus reorientates their thinking. He says, look in, look in the world, out there where there's authority. It's all about serving yourselves, isn't it? Looking out for number one, getting others to serve you. Think about those kings or emperors of old with servants and attendants by the thousand who boost their egos by having the longest titles and the, the greatest honours, who flaunt their authority and position. Not so in my kingdom, says Jesus. Greatness is about service. In my kingdom, authority is given in order to serve others. The one who is first is the one who abases himself the lowest and serves others. The problem is, though, isn't it, that we're so used to authority being misused, we've forgotten what it's supposed to look like. We're taught to mistrust authority and think of it as a bad thing. But think about some of the places in the Bible where people are given authority. Parents are given authority over children. But their authority is not to be used for their own service, is it? It's to be used for the good of the children, to serve them. When a parent says to a child, don't play on the railway line, it's not some sort of power play by the parent, which shouldn't be. It's about using that authority to protect and care for the child. Or think about church leaders. Church leaders are given authority in the Bible. Uh, Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. They're given authority to serve the people. That's why they have authority over them, to work for their good. Church pastors, elders, leaders, whatever you want to call them, are supposed to be ministers. That word means a servant, a waiter, a busboy. Not a very grandiose title, is it? I get really embarrassed sometimes. Some people try and call me reverend. I get stuff through the post, Reverend Chris Haley. Makes me feel as though I'm there to be reverenced. No, a church leader is a servant. Because true leadership is about servanthood. 
But this isn't just about church leaders. It's about us all. Really, he's addressing the whole church. If we want to be great, someone great, Jesus says, be a servant to others. He puts it more strongly in verse 45. If you want to be number one in my kingdom, then you must be a slave to all. And that word slave there is the word slave, not servant. It's a stronger word. A slave has no rights, no say, no recognition. He lives to serve. That is the greatest one, says Jesus, the slave of all. So if you want to find the greatest in my kingdom, says Jesus, don't look for the one being idolized up at the front of the megachurch, the one with 20 assistants, private jet, and huge following. Look for the one clearing up at the end without being asked. Look for the one washing the cups after the meeting. Look for the one dutifully caring for their family without once being thanked. Look for the one quietly helping those in need throughout the week without making a fuss. Look for those picking up the slack that others leave. Look for those taking the flack for others' mistakes. And those who at the end of the day say with the servants in Luke 17, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That is greatness in my kingdom, says Jesus. So you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Well, there's a broom in the cupboard. There are some rubber gloves in the kitchen. There are a dozen people in church who'd love you to go encourage them over a cuppa. There are children who would love to talk to you about Paw Patrol after the service. You think I'm being funny, and I only half am. Are those things beneath us? Who comes to church to clean up? Who comes to church to do those things? Who comes to church to, not to take in, but to give out? Who comes to be served, not to be served, but to serve? Think about that for a second. The answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And he tells his disciples to do the same. He does a sort of JFK switch. You know, John F. Kennedy famously said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, Jesus is saying, ask not what others can do for you, but what you can do for others. Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. Jesus does not expect us to be spectators in the Christian lives, but servants. So what are we doing to serve others? Now, it doesn't have to be sweeping or washing or some manual work. I don't want to play off physical labor against uh, spiritual work, as though to sweep a floor is somehow more blessed than to lead a Bible study or to teach at Sunday school. These same disciples will later say to the church in, in only a few months' time, Acts chapter 6, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. But there, it's not that the apostles were unwilling to serve tables. It's that they recognized that time taken serving tables would mean less time for them to devote to the ministry of the word that God had given to them and to prayer. We have to serve God in the way that God has given us, using the gifts the Spirit has given us to the best use in the kingdom. But it won't always be the things that we necessarily want to do. A slave doesn't pick their tasks, do they? 
No, I don't feel like that today. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm always astounded that people's gifts in church are nearly always something that they like doing or that they find easy. Speaking to myself here as much as you guys. I find evangelism hard. Cold contact evangelism, I find especially hard. I don't like it. Does that mean it's not my gift? I used to find preaching hard. still do in many ways. Uh, but I mean to the point where I'd nearly be sick the night before when I was due to preach. Caroline and I used to talk about my Sunday stomach uh, on the days that I was preaching. I'd come home certain I would never put myself through that again. Does that mean preaching was not my gift? But a slave does not choose their assignment. And that's a real mindset change, isn't it? When we realize that our whole lives belong to God, when we realize that he has the right to decide what we do, he picks the mission, he makes the calls, and my own preferences is not what's important. Imagine for a second that we put on an evangelistic jazz night. It turns out to be one of those events where there are definitely going to be more visitors than Christians there. More people are needed to come and chat to visitors. Would you go and help out? Would you still go if you don't like jazz music? It's a real scenario, actually. That was something that happened a few years ago in a different church. Uh, I asked someone if they were coming to support this evangelistic jazz night. And their answer was, no, I don't like jazz. Now, we need to realize, don't we, it's making that change in your head. It's not all about me and what I want and what I like. It's about him and serving him by serving others. It's what some people have called a Copernican revolution, when we realize that the world does not revolve around us. Copernicus discovered that the, the earth goes around the sun, not the sun going around the earth. We live to serve him by serving others. So what are we doing to serve? But, but, and this is an important but, nobody can serve Jesus without first being served by Jesus. The popular images of God we have in our society are normally either a dodgy old man in the sky granting wishes, or a sort of narcissistic megalomaniac bent on getting everyone to pay him compliments. But a verse like verse 45 blows this out of the water, doesn't it? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God enters the mess. He comes as a man in order to serve. Not just to set an example of what it looks like to serve, but actually to serve people, to get his hands dirty, so to speak. He comes as a man to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is the word used for a payment given to free a slave. We still use it when someone's being held captive or, or hostage. You pay their ransom to set them free, to rescue them. And that is what Jesus has done. He paid a ransom to set us free. What was that ransom? Well, he tells us his death. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And the idea of death as the wages of sin is there right back in the Garden of Eden. God tells them that sin will cost them their lives. So it's not money or riches that is needed to pay for sin, but a life must be given. We see that at Passover with the blood over the doorposts of the Lamb. We see it in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament as an animal is killed in the place of a person. 
But really we know that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But the blood of the God-man can. Infinitely valuable, yet human blood like ours, like for like. So only Jesus could make this payment. Only Jesus could pay our ransom. Yet his ransom here is not for all, but for many. Now, I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of limited atonement or unlimited atonement here. It would be a distraction at this point in the morning. But let's put it this way. Jesus' sacrifice does not apply to everyone. Not everyone is forgiven. Not everyone goes to heaven, to put it bluntly. So the question is, has Jesus paid your ransom? Has he paid it for you? His blood has been shed, but have you put your faith in his death to make you right with God? Or are you trusting in something else to put you right with him? One of the tragic things about this passage is that some people miss out verse 45 altogether. They get the service thing and they try and pay their own ransom by their own service, like a slave trying to pay off their own slave debt. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that Jesus paid it all. All the debt is paid. All the ransom payment made. There's a scene in the film uh, Saving Private Ryan where a man dies rescuing someone else and his last words to the man are, earn it. But Jesus' last words were, it is finished. Paid it. Our service to others is not the cause of our salvation. It's the effect of our salvation. It's the fruit, not the root. It's the response, not the reason. So we serve because we've first been served by Jesus. So have you been served by Jesus? If the answer's no, then why not? This comes as a gift from Christ. He earned it. He paid it. All is ready for you to come to him. All you need to do is come with empty hands in faith. You need to be served by Jesus, by his death. If the answer is yes, you have been served by Jesus, well, are you serving others as he served you? Are you taking up your cross in service to others? What could you do this week? this day even, to serve another believer. Not to earn your place in heaven, not to try and pay Jesus back, but to be like your Lord Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. So like Jesus, we are to expect a cross now, but glory later. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him, and we too are to take up our cross for the glory and joy set before us. But for now, what are we to expect from the Christian life? A life secure in our forgiveness, serving others as our master Jesus did. A life that's not glamorous or outwardly glorious, but one that looks forward to the glory that is to come. Is that what you expect of the Christian life? What did you expect? Well, let's pray that God would help us see things his way and devote our lives to serving him by serving one another. Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he did come not to be served, but to serve. Father, thank you for his death on the cross that pays for all our sin. Father, help us never to get into that mindset that we are earning our way to heaven because Jesus has paid it all. But Father, help us from that 
position of security to serve others, uh, to lovingly lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.